Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time, which, as I'm sure those of you listening to this show for a while now know, means reevaluating where we are in the accepted cultural narratives that we have internalized, narratives of our origins and our destiny. Seeing things in a new way transforms our understanding of past, present, and future, which is why I am committed to exploring the margins of our maps and indulging alternative perspectives on all of those things we take for granted. One great example is today's guest, Bernie Taylor, someone I imagine history may redeem as one of those almost cliche outsiders who managed to precipitate a total revolution in a field beyond their supposed expertise. Bernie's work with ancient cave artwork dispels our presentist interpretations of the meaning of these most ancient forms of human cultural activity, and it recasts our understanding of the prehistoric roots of contemporary and ubiquitous forms, the hero's journey, the annual round, the relationship between the human and the non-human. It was really exciting to talk to him last fall, and I'm glad that I finally have the bandwidth to get this episode out for you. But before we begin, I'd like to give a deep thanks to the 145 Patreon supporters that are helping me keep this show and all of the surrounding creative activity, the free and public Facebook group, all of the new music and art, and the Future Fossils Psychedelic Science Fiction Book Club, all of these things, including our newest patrons, Kate O, Jason Krapf, Stephen Scully, Charlie Pateski, and Miriam and Tyler Kimbrough. Thank you all so much for joining the Future Fossils community, and I hope that you're all making the most that you can of all of the exclusive and early release stuff that goes in there. Heads up to anyone who's been on the fence about contributing to my annual goal of reaching 200 Patreon supporters. Our next book club meeting will be on the monolithic masterpiece of Chinese science fiction, Xijin Lu's three-body problem, and I'll be putting up a scheduling poll for that two-hour video called Discussion on Patreon here shortly. Also, a big thanks to everyone who has been reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts. There are now 123 ratings and just a, a, a long scroll of gushing five-star reviews, which, as I'm sure anyone listening to podcasts on a regular basis knows, makes an enormous difference to the discoverability of this show, its longevity, and the richness of its community. As we continue to uh, involve more and more people in the conversation and serve more and more minds with these inspiring discussions, it makes a huge difference if you want to just pop on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to this and take a moment to leave a short review. Deeply appreciated, and it helps folks sift through the avalanche of new information and decide to join you in the warm and welcoming waters of this show. <laughs> so thanks again to everybody who's been leading the charge on that front and to everyone who will in the days and weeks to come. And with that, let me express my deep appreciation for Bernie Taylor as a bizarrely rare archaeological voice on this supposedly archaeological program. The last episode I think I had with someone studying cave art phenomena was with uh, Dr. Chill back in episode 13. So definitely check that one out after you've listened to this, if you've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, both of them are fascinating and both offer a very compelling window into the early minds of humanity. And uh, so enjoy. Thanks a lot. And I'll see you again next week.
All right, Bernie Taylor, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Michael, thanks for having me. So I can relate to the uh, somewhat difficult condition of being an independent scholar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, although I don't want to uh, take up too much of this conversation talking about that, I am, I am curious how you came into your um, archaeological study uh, outside of institutional affiliation and, you know, a bit of history and, and background about your, uh, your passion for this stuff and, and leading into the actual meat of your, your thesis would be a great place to start, I think. Absolutely. So I stumbled into this from other places. And how this journey sort of started was I wrote a book about um, trout, okay? And um, that book evolved into some work about biological clocks and rhythms in nature. Then I wrote another book about uh, titled Biological Time. And in Biological Time, I looked at a wide range of animals across the biological spectrum, including salmon. And I gave presentations at universities, fish and wildlife agencies, the tribes, um, academic conferences, all that sort of stuff, did the peer-reviewed literature as well. And what I found is that if people have a good idea, or at least an idea that doesn't um, harm anybody, um, they're generally receptive, but it takes some time to, to change the, you know, the mode. And the, the, the thesis of the, the biological time book went down to a very simple concept, is that there are many animals that have lunar timing, so they're timed to light and dark cycles of the night. Well, the moon is out of sync with the year, and so if you take 12 times 29 and a half, you're 11 days short of 365. So if the migration of the salmon, hypothetically, is during the dark period of the, of the moon, then it would be January 12th one year and January 1st the next year. And that's why the migrations of salmon are earlier later from one year to the next. Okay. And so was, I, I, I applied that principle across the biological spectrum, gave lots of presentations, and it also interrelated with the tribes here in the Columbia Basin of Oregon. And when you start connecting with Indians, you hear things that you've never, you don't hear, you never read in school. Um, and they had this whole thing in their calendars. Um, and they had it in their artwork and in their traditions and how they hunted and fished and gathered and their, their holidays and everything else. And it, someone said to me, you know, if the Indians have it, maybe people have it deeper in time. So in biological time, I looked back into Lascaux Cave 17,000 years ago, and I found the connection between these bi biological clocks and rhythms as Native Americans practice them at, and as is biologically um, statistically demonstrated uh, that it was also in the caves in France. Um, and I left it there in terms of the archaeology. Um, then I said, I said to myself, I'm going to come back 10 years and, you know, start this process over again. And it came back 10 years. And at that, by that time, older cave, caves that were older, or at least the art was older, had emerged in their own dating. And I can go back to 40,000 years ago with the El Castillo cave. And I started counting the dots biological time stuff with the animals, same as I did in, in the book. And I said, and I found that, well, there's more to the story here. And right away, I started seeing animals in El Castillo cave in the Cantabria region, and they're African animals. And it sort of set me off on a different path of the biological time of the, you know, the, the plants, the animals, and you know, how do they know where to harvest and hunt and gather, all that sort of stuff. And so, how to, so a scholar outside of the outside of the system was actually helpful because I didn't have to follow any rules. Um, I could talk to anthropologists and archaeologists and people who study different areas without being stuck in any particular box. But then again, I also pushed some buttons as well because you know millions of people had seen these images but didn't see these animals. And there's, there's reasons why they didn't see them. And it has to do with the, psycho, um, the psychology of man and how the cave artists hid them um, as part of a test. And, but I, I had a kind of a lucky break on this. And it was, I had met someone in my early 20s, I'm 53 now. His name is George Schaller. And George Schaller is considered the world's foremost wildlife biologist. He was the mentor of good, Jane Goodall and everybody at that time period you could possibly imagine. And I connected with George briefly 20 minutes when I was in Beijing in my 20s. And I reconnected with him when I was right starting this, on this project because I found these African animals. 
I want to see if George could say if they were, I believe, to be African animals. But I want to see if George would agree or not. And he agreed to, you know, take a quick look. Well, a year and a half later and hundreds of emails, quick looks later, we kind of had a rapport and we, we came to a common mind that, yes, in fact, the animals on one end of this 10 meter pa panel, which is about 30 feet, were African animals. And the animals on the other end of this panel were European animals. And the animals in between were marine animals. And so we have somebody who traveled from the Iberian Peninsula, now Spain, across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa and then back again. And so in a nutshell of how does a scholar work from the outside to, and I don't assume as, as, as a scholar, I more as a naturalist, how does someone work from the outside and integrate to mainstream science in these different fields is to, you know, get people's attention and people who are interested in pursuing interesting directions. And in this case, I really got George's interest because he, um, you know, he was like, we, we were finding animals he, he never envisioned. We found a cheetah and, and four cubs. We found a, a bearing lynx and the juvenile was pushing up against the, the rough of the chin of the mother. And it's, a, it's a touching scene. We have a, a, a lioness who's um, licking up to a lion. Um, she's licking his, his, his mouth as um, greeting him. And so we found all these amazing scenes that George related to as a wildlife biologist. And, well, and, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's stop there and, and unpack that a little bit for people. Cause you're talking sure. about, you know, you talked about counting dots and you're talking about the red ochre dots. Yes. Castillo, right. This was, um, if people, I mean, people can go to, uh, before Orion.com and, and see your, your pictures and your interpretations of this stuff. Sure. I also saw, a more kind of mainstream take on El Castillo uh, on the Netflix series uh, Civilization. Yes. Recently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they didn't see it. Yeah, they didn't see it. And so you, you yeah. see in the show, you see the dots, but you don't mm -hmm. see the creatures. And like watching right. your your videos on YouTube, uh, I was struck by I, there was another fellow, uh, an amateur archaeologist in Austin, Texas, whose private collection of of stone tools uh, I was given a, like a, a tour of uh, a while back and he was pointing out all of these what he saw as as faces in in these stones and you know he sure. basically making you know this case that that we we projected life that we saw life and and character and and personality and all of this stuff back then and that <laughs> it's in a sense it's like not a surprise that the first time we recognize animal artwork in the human archaeological record, it's like fully developed. It's those like gorgeous, realistic Lascaux, you know, right. horses and stuff. But you would expect there to be this other kind of um, more alien or more bizarre relationship to nature. And that's what you're pointing to. Right. So like, how, how do you, right. how are you actually identifying this stuff? How did you come to see it in the first place? Like what, what's, what's going on there? That's a really good question. This is for, this is the El Castillo cave and the gallery of discs. How so? How did I get beyond the red discs? Okay, really, what it was, and and what the people in the, in the Netflix civilization program didn't do um, is I was looking for a horse. Okay, in the Paleolithic record, the most common animal depicted is a horse and typically a pregnant mare. So we've got this 10-meter panel with dots streaming across the middle, and each dot is about the size of the palm of your hand. There's maybe 80 or 90 in total. And I said, there's a lot of space on that panel. So I started looking for the, the horse, and I didn't find it until three years later. And it was the most, it, it ended up being the most important animal to have found to put the pieces together. But before I found the horse, I found we found all these other animals. And the most significant one, which is really the the showstopper, and uh, it was the giraffe. There were no, because you can argue with they were they were different animals in, in Europe and Africa at the same time, but there were no giraffes in, in Europe during anywhere near that time period. And when I, I remember that I saw it, and it's a fabulous giraffe because it's life-size. It's a 10-meter panel, and this giraffe covers about a third of it. And the red discs form the molted pattern on the, on the neck of the giraffe. And it has the ears and the horns and so on. And I zipped it off to, to George and email. I said, I found a giraffe, found a giraffe. And before he even he gets back to me, responds back to me minutes later, I said, oh, my God, I see another giraffe. 
and there's a juvenile which wraps its neck around the mother. And her, the juvenile's head tucks in under the chin of the other's the mother. And this, so this was, again, you have a mother giraffe protecting her young. We have this beautiful empathetic scene, which George kept bringing out to me. It's not about counting the discs. It's not about the biology. It's about these artists understood the feelings of these animals and could, could relate to them. And that was really the message I got from George, as, in addition to the taxonomy and, and actually identifying these animals. And so that was the moment, that was George's moment and my moment that we just had it because the, it was the giraffe. Because there, there's lions in the panel. We could have been lions of all sides. There's cheetah. You could have had cheetah in Europe at that time. Europe at that time. We have no evidence of it, but there could have been cheetah and bears and so forth. But it was the giraffe that made the difference. And we also what was so important about this giraffe. It, it had very distinct features of a giraffe. And so this isn't like a, a globular type of thing a, a first grader does. This is a, a very detailed taxonomic representation. This artist had been to, to Africa, he had seen a giraffe, and he had seen the relationship between the mother and the young. Or, or he copied a picture of somebody else who did it. So maybe someone chalked on the back of a fur or something, a, a tanned hide, but the, someone had seen a giraffe. Because it, was, it wasn't, this, it's nothing you could have seen in the European environment that you could have related to. It was so far off. So that was the, that was the, the big moment. And when people see the, when I show, do presentations and so forth, and people, you know, like, you know, maybe it's Europe, maybe Europe, but everybody, when they see the draft, they just say, okay, that's what it is. What's most important about this draft is it becomes the first evidence, other than DNA, that we had traveled from Africa to Europe and we had traveled back again. And so this whole idea of my, that people took, you know, tens of thousands of years to migrate around the Mediterranean before they got in Europe is nonsensical. People swim across the Strait of Gibraltar today. It takes about three hours. Some, some people have done it three lengths in a kind of a race. And, you, you know, you catch, the, you catch these currents that go in and out of the Mediterranean to the Atlantic. And you catch them one way um, and then you catch them the other way to kind of swing back towards Africa. People were doing it. They knew how to swim. We can see a person swimming this image. And it changes the whole human migration story in that we, people just didn't leave Africa. They left Africa and then they came back again. They traveled back for their, what I would describe as the hero's journey experience, which is uh, more, um, we know for the work of Joseph Campbell in Young. So these, these uh, animals in the rock, they're not they're not painted in like they're, they're decorated in the, the, the ochre dots. Right. But, but you're actually, yes, yeah. they're like a part of the cave. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Absolutely. So, so you can, you can imagine you've walking, you've walked down rivers alongside rivers and you've seen stone walls and some of the rivers you've walked down are like limestone. If you like Pennsylvania, you'll see limestone walls along the, the rivers. So you have this huge limestone wall that has some organic matter, has some mineral matter across the top. Well, they, well actually, those, that mineral matter was, across, was on the whole panel at one time. So the first thing the artist does is he starts scraping off that mineral matter, and he creates white spaces, what's about, so about two-thirds from the, from the floor going up towards the ceiling. But he keeps the top in that darker mineral matter, and he sort of he carves out um, images of animals in that darker matter. And then what he does, he, he, he does, he carves out images of animals in the, in this white limestone or off white limestone at this point. And then he puts the red discs on top. He, he puts the red discs on top and there's also some black discs and he does some shading with black as well. But there's also blue paint. There's a man that wears a mask and his, it's, it's painted. It's actually painted blue. Someone brought blue from outside and put it onto the to create this man's mask and in his what, blue what eyes. What is the pigment? The blue pigment. That's so good question. So now is the now is the time for the archaeologists to go figure that one out. Um, and the people who who are responsible for these caves are they see it, they get what's going on, and they're now doing what they do as archaeologists to figure out what makes the pigment. And George was interesting when he first saw it. He said, you know, you know, does someone bring a, a bucket of paint in there? Because I was thinking it was actually the original rock, and but in fact it, it is um, some sort of blue paint, most likely some sort of marine matter. But it's it's there. So the artist used many different techniques to 
bring out natural formations in the rocks to form the animals, to engrave animals on top of each other. So we have, um, so for, and, and people are on top of animals. So example, a man overlaps with a horse and he becomes a centaur. The same man overlaps with an eagle and he becomes an avianoid, a bird man. An, a, another man overlaps with a dolphin to become a merman. And the artist does this throughout the whole process. And uh, he's, what he's doing with this is when the, when the hero on his journey encounters these animals, he draws strength from them. And that's how it typically is in the shamanic journey, some shamanic hero's journey, is that the indigenous people drew strength from the animals. But what's most interesting about the animals they draw strength from, they're almost all female. Hmm. So what does that, what does that say? So the, the male hero draws strength from the female characters. Is it matriarchal or patriarchal? What do you think? Well, you know, that's interesting because I was just listening to, I've had, uh, culture critic John David Ebert on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his stuff, but he was just giving a talk in Santa Fe last night that I attended. And he was talking about the use of, of uh, red ochre in basically demarcating human burial rites. And like the, mm -hmm. these, you know, when we started, when like Neanderthals, even before that, started these like collective graves and these keyhole shaped mm -hmm. deals that was, we believe kind of an indication of the, you know, the maternal vulva, like the great mother, and that the red ochre would have been the, uh, you know, the menstrual blood of the mother goddess. And so, you know, it's, it doesn't, really surprise me at all that if we go this far back that we would see that particular power emphasized in this um that you know that there is that that piece of it the other thing that i i think about hearing this and maybe we're kind of like getting ahead of ourselves but um i was i just listened to a great episode of the stuff to blow your mind podcast that they put out for Halloween specifically about the history of the monster. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, they, they, <laughs> they kind of framed the whole thing in the conversation of the sculpture uh, of the Lowenmensch from Germany, the, the, mm -hmm. the lion headed and possibly mm -hmm. also lion footed figurine that clearly mm -hmm. took like hundreds of hours to carve. Sure. And this, the, you know, puzzling around this particular issue of, you know, this being a sort of, prototypical or, or archetypical instance of these combinations, you know, like much like we see later on with like the sorcerer, you know, the sort of like half man, half deer, but it, mm -hmm. sounds, it, Again, sounds, yeah. uh, it sounds to me like what you're saying is actually that the, that we've sort of mistaken these human animal hybrids in three-dimensional sculptural form that they may actually be be like referencing these sort of superpositions of human and animal in the cave art where you actually see in 2D, you'll see multiple re rel relatively clearly rendered images actually just stacked right on top of each other, right? Absolutely. So you make a really good point, okay? Um, well, back to the, mo the mother goddess thing with yeah. the red. I would just describe as the red as describing sacred space versus... The, you know, the, you could, from sacred space, you can bring it in many different directions. But um, with your, your previous, the person you had, you had on. Yeah. But back to, let's call them the monsters, right? Because so water monsters live in caves, which is an archetypal symbol that's in our head. Well, if I just saw the man that overlaps with the horse, I would, you know, just it's a monster, right? It's the man integrated with the two. But then as I see, we see these characters going across the panel with the people overlapping with the animals. And we can see that they, you know, he runs with the strength of the, of the, the mare. Um, he swims with the strength of the dolphin. You know, we can, he flies with the, you know, with the fortitude of the eagle. And so we, we by seeing these interrelationship in the actual story, we can just see that it's not, they're not monsters per se. But, so this is, this is where it gets really important. We actually know the story. This is the story that the Greeks told us. It's the story of Hercules. So on this panel, we have a man to the at one end to the north and, and a man to the south. The man to the, to the north is the constellation Hercules. That horse I mentioned is um, Pegasus. The eagle is Aegea. The dolphin is Pisces. We have Orion. 
And then we have above him, I said, the lions. Well, the lions would become Leo. And next to Leo, we have the bears, Ursa Major. We have the great auk, which is Cygnus. And we have a lion, I'm sorry, a, a, a crocodile, which becomes Draco. And there's many other constellations in there as well. So the, the ancients had been to these caves. And they'd been to this cave specifically because there's very specific images that they drew out from them. And their interpretation of this was that Hercules goes, this hero, Hercules goes on a journey and he interrelates with all these characters. And so Hercules and Orion are the same character in the Paleolithic story, but the, the Greeks separated them. So the, but the Greeks didn't really understand. They took them as kind of not really monsters, but definitely not the interrelationship between the, the male character borrowing the strength of the female. We went to some different I don't want to say awakening, but a different way of thinking that the animals, we could draw strength from them, but they didn't have to be male animals. But they, it was still the, the males who, um, you know, we have the centaurs of males as far as I, I've seen. Hmm. But, you know, I, I, I wonder about this because I know, uh, yeah, again, my, my sort of intersection with archaeology is somewhat limited. But mm -hmm. um, I've heard from a, a number of different people you know, talking about this sort of history of the astro or of the Zodiac, right? Mm -hmm. Basically is what, sure. you know, you're pointing to. And you're saying that, that this El Castillo cave mural was capturing both the, what I guess we could take to be some sort of initiatory, right? Um, like a crossing of the, the street yeah. of Gibraltar and a kind of, Field, That's good, yeah. Like a field expedition, you know, like go find these animals and and probably like ritually engage in some way or like it, you know, like at least at least identify them, like the like the birder kind of thing, you know, at like uh, witness them with your own eyes, perhaps. But then that's that would be like a microcosm of the procession of the equinoxes right like i mean you know, you know bill thompson talks about a lot of this early cave art pointing to, again to like uh the age uh before the age of pisces yeah so i don't agree with that. Hmm? yeah so i don't agree i don't agree so i don't agree i don't believe that they monitor the procession of the equinoxes okay. or that it's depicted the pelvic cave art or and this is the reason why i'm going to start is that this image depicts a early june time period Okay, so we're near to the summer solstice. And how we can tell that is two ways. One is we can look at the animals, and it's that's in the time of their life history strategy, it's early, it's early June, early to mid-June. Okay. And uh, the second way we can tell is that through the astronomy, is I can I can dial back the clock in the astronomy programs to 34,000 years ago. And this is a this is a pre-dawn time scene in the looking from the Strait of Gibraltar. Okay, so we can actually see this night, the night sky that we can see now, the computer program is exactly the same as, as they saw it. As, as, as the computer program mathematically re puts it back in time with some of the stars change and all that sort of stuff. So the, the concept of this procession of the equinox is that people are timing back. It, it doesn't correct. It isn't correct. What the Greeks did and the other ancients did is they started this concept of the procession of the equinox. Um, and, but they, they, they couldn't tell 34,000 years ago, they could have told it was a June time period, but they could not have told that, they could have gauged that it was 34,000 years ago based on the astronomy. Because the stars move up and, up and below the horizon, and they didn't have that knowledge. Ptolemy, who's considered the, the, let's call him the first astronomer among the Greeks, the major astronomer, so about two, roughly about just over 2,000 years ago, um, he, was a, he was also the librarian at, at the Alexandria. Ptolemy gave us the astronomical record that we have today. So most of the major constellations in the Northern Hemisphere came from Ptolemy. Ptolemy borrowed them from this image, or he had some, a reference that borrowed it from this image. And there have been many questions about Ptolemy over time. He said, well, how could he have known about these constellations? Because some of the constellations of Ptolemy's record were too far south that he could have seen them, or other Greeks could have seen them. Mm. Um, and so what it was is that because the so-called procession of the equinoxes, the world, the globe spins like a top. Um, but it's not really about the equinox. It's about the, it's about the spinning like a top. And when it spins down, certain you can see some stars when, um, uh, fewer stars when it spins up you can see more stars 
And so Ptolemy couldn't have seen the stars that he put in his record. So where did he get them from? He got them from another time period. And I would argue it was actually this cave. Um, so he, he's because all his constellation, most of his constellations, we can see them here intact in their in their form. But the this the procession, the equinox concept that people were looking to images to try to go back in time. It doesn't work, but it was a it was a good idea. It was a great area for exploration, but everybody wasn't working off the equinoxes. And that's really the fundamental problem with this. Um, people are different. People made cave art or astronomical interpretations into their caves throughout the world. Um, and they did it different times of the year based on where they were hunting and gathering. And But this whole procession of the equinox thing with the zodiac is fundamentally based around the equinoxes and the vernal equinox. The zodiac, as we know it, wasn't created until the Babylonians. The, these ancients didn't have a zodiac. The Paleolithic cave artists didn't have a zodiac. They used constellations that the Babylonians and Greeks later became the zodiac, which is a big difference. But it is the root. Of, it is the roots of the whole thing. But it's not the. They didn't have. I don't believe. There's no indication that they they were the procession of equinoxes because they weren't even working on the equinoxes. Mm. You mentioned something also about the counting of the dots. Yeah. And that in it in your relation to this establishing a lunar time were you were you saying that there was a uh, identifying markers of a lunar calendar in this this hero's journey like in this mural yeah so that's where i started mm-hmm. and where i ended up is to throw up the numbers out the window mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the previous book in, in lascaux there's lots of nomenclature that tie specifically to the lunar timing of the animals and and the biological events is pretty it's pretty simple but this one this is further back in time i don't believe they did it that way what they did was they had the very specific taxonomic details of the animals for that time of year for example there's a juvenile a golden eagle which is fledging and so you can see it's white down and it tells us that it's so many so many days or so many weeks from the time that the egg hatched. And we can figure out what time the heads, eggs hatched for, for a golden eagle in that part of the world. And we can figure out the timing to be early June. But so they, they were more interested in the, they were depicting very specific time periods of the animals. And I said there is a, there's a, there's a lynx, a mother lynx and her kitten. Well, there's only one kitten and there should be two. Well, the kittens get killed off pretty quick. The lynx kittens, usually by the other kitten. There's also a bunch of cheat. There's a cheater with her young. There's four. There's four to five young. There's definitely we can see four four juveniles. Maybe there's a fifth. Well, cheater kittens get killed off pretty quick too, and that would tell us that it was within within two months of the juvenile of the cheaters being born that this was depicted. Any further than that, you're down to two or three kittens. Mm. And so the artist. As I see it, he depicted the, the very specific time periods of the animals. Um, and I, I actually left the, the counting of the discs because I realized that the red discs on this panel were a test to see if there are apprentices who can get past the, fo- you know, see the forest through the trees. Or in this case, to see the elephants and the giraffes and all these other animals without getting tied up with the red discs. And I give, I've given this test to many people who had no idea what I was doing. It was before the book came out. And I could pretty much tell, I could, you, you actually, there's a correlation between what people do for a living and what they look for. So people who have engineering, we'll call it uh, mathematical science degrees, they start counting the red disks. Whereas people that have more of an art background or social scientists, they start looking in the lines. They start look, seeing what the possibilities are. And so there's a different, there's a mindset that I believe that this was testing for and a mindset that was important for the apprentice who would become the, the, the shamanic teacher um, and carry on the traditions of their people. So I believe it was about the red discs about seeing the forest through trees and getting past the red discs to see the, the beauty of the world and all the possibilities. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's something about the, you know, recognizing the figure in the negative space, right? Yes. That, that uh, you know, we talk about, like Temple Grandin talks about the autistic mindset as thinking in, in images rather than in words. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, uh, there's evidence that different cultures, like the American culture will look at the same 
uh, image as Japanese culture of a group of people and the, the person standing in the front of the group is wearing a different expression than everyone else. And Americans tend to believe that that this person is, the, you know, this protagonist is in the right, whereas the, the Japanese they've found tend to believe that this person is, is somehow like putting on a false front in like representing a group in a like a diplomatic way. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you're pointing to, first of all, an, an emphasis and your YouTube videos say as much that there's an emphasis here on uh, the appreciation of neurodiversity. Correct. But yeah. um, I, can you can you speak more to that? And like, let me do that. Yeah, that's yeah. important. Yeah. And uh, Pete, um, there was a paper written last spring or published last spring that they believe that the people who made the cave art were autistic. Because some autistic people pass what's called an embedded image test, and many of these images are embedded. Okay, there, and you've taken you have taken embedded image tests in your life. Remember when you were younger, you went to a diner, and on the flip side of the kids' menu, there are like animals that were embedded in like a forest, and you had to find the animals. Oh yeah. Okay, that's embedded image test. But when psychologists give it, they don't do animals; they have shapes. Okay, and this is fun in that this panel is embedded image test just like the one you did on the flip side of your kid's menu um, when you're a child. So the question is, what kind of people more easily pass this embedded image test? The, the, it said that people have local processing bias versus global processing bias, which sees kind of a bigger picture of stuff. So the question is, does, do I, Bernie Taylor, am I autistic? No. But what, how can I do very well with this embedded image test that millions of other people haven't, hadn't seen? Um, so I'm dyslexic, and that means that I see in pictures. I don't see in words. Um, so I don't think in words, I should say. And so I, through my whole life, I've been, you know, I struggle with writing, but I, you know, I'm, I'm an accomplished writer, obviously, by this point. I work very hard at it. But I'm, I'm a visual person. So I was like the perfect person to look at this. And I believe with this test was a picture thinker. And so no, dyslexia, autism, Asperger's, there are different neurological differences in the mind. They're not deficiencies. They're not um, hardships. They're just different ways of seeing things. And I believe that this test was for a person who could see the world differently and see differently from the tribe because this person was so important. This apprentice would become the spiritual leader who told the time, told the stories, kept the traditions. Because when these people... For example, a, a, you know, a salmon or a trout worm was coming up the river. If they were late, they didn't have food. If they're too early for the a migration of the bison or the the reindeer, they didn't have food. So this person had to be working outside the realms of normal thinking of, you know, counting peanuts, um, making baskets, and drying food. This person had to be on the periphery, had to be kind of like the big thinker, had to be the Elon Musk of the tribe, of the clan. And I believe that this test was to bring that story. This, this, someone could actually could do it. And, and by the way, I, when I gave people this test, I had a wide spectrum. And some people, they struggled to see the elephant and they kept going back to the red disc. But there was one per actually two people that looked at this gallery, this panel, and everything that I see now jump, that took me three years to see it just jumped out at those people at one time. It was actually fascinating to, to see this. So we truly are wired differently. And at the boardroom table and whatever conference we're in, if everybody, if you choose people, they're all wired the same way, you're not going to get the, perspective, the greater perspective. If you study archaeopolitic cave art with people who... Um, very intelligent people, hardworking people that are really good at digging up the ground and looking at counting grains of sand, that's not going to be the person who has the ability to pull out these images from the wall. Hmm. So you, you don't think that this was a common rite of passage for... Oh, I think it was. Oh, I, totally. I think that uh, most of the cave images in Europe were a rite of passage because I actually not most of the images that there was a panel in each cave that was a rite of passage. There was one panel that was a test. Other ones I can't say one I can't say one way or the other. 
But for sure, there was always one panel, and it's typically in the, the deeper part of the caves, and that's where I found these. And this is, I, I did, um, I had a few panels in the book that I pulled out the images that had not been previously identified. But there's others, too, that I didn't do, uh, because I didn't have rights, I couldn't get rights to the images. But I, I paid for the rights to the ones I used for the book, so I can make t-shirts if I want to. But the, but absolutely, there was at least one panel that was a rite of passage test for the apprentice to see if they could see the forest through the trees. I reasoned that there could be more in there. But I have encountered people that, I mean, it just jumps out at them. So we are truly wired differently. So there's the image recognition test. Like if you can read this t-shirt, you might be a shaman. But then there's also, you, you talk about the crossing of the water, the crossing of Gibraltar Strait. And yes. do, you, do you believe that that was a a commonly held activity? Or do you believe that that was reserved for the people who passed the image recognition test, I guess is, is what I'm asking. I think there are many levels of the test. Yeah. Was the test yeah. The first level of the test was you had to be able to see the forest through the trees. And by seeing the forest through the trees, you could actually see the map. And so we have all these animals that are from, they're from Europe and they're from Africa and across the marine environment in the middle. And those those same animals are, are the same as the constellations in the night sky. So as this hero takes his journey um, through down the Iberian Peninsula across the, across the strait, he's charting his progress in the night sky and through the animals around him. So there's many steps in the in the te- in the test that um, one passes, and at each in- how Native Americans told stories like this is that when they encountered animals, they learned from those animals. So the animals who weren't what they hunted just for food is that in fact if you if the animal they did kill the animal, they you know had a blessing for the animal and an offering, and they they recognized that the animal gave something of themselves to set the the Native American give them a meal. So the this shamanic apprentice, he takes this, he takes this journey and he, he travels it by earth and again in the night sky as his map. And he encounters all these animals and he learns from them. He learns that the mother protects the young. And that, this, is, this is revolutionary, the concept of archaeology, because not just archaeology, anthropology, sociology, psychology. How modern man thinks is based on the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, dug up in the sands of the Middle East about 4,500 from 4,500 years ago. And Gilgamesh is a story of a man who goes on a journey, and he he fundamentally has all the same issues that we have today. Okay, and the people in his environment have the same issues. And so psychologists will start there and say, okay, so Gilgamesh ha- is basically you know just as nuts as we are. Therefore, we haven't changed that much in 40 4,500 years. Well, this now puts it back 30,000 years beyond that. We haven't changed. So in this program, we talk about future fossils. We today are, you know, a carbon copy of what people were doing 34,000 years ago. And I would be willing to bet that it's hundreds of thousands of years ago before that. We haven't changed very much. So, you know, it's like we're like Batman. We have better toys. okay? but we still have that bat, that animus spirit within us that ties us to the to the world around us. That's interesting, you know, because Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University has done a lot of work on the the reappearance of the superhero in mm-hmm. in modern culture, and you know, like the draws a straight line back to exactly this kind of human animal superposition yeah. and the the acquisition, like Spider Man being sort of the the ultimate example of someone who's you know he's like bitten by the spider, and so it's like in in a way it's like his you know he makes this blood offering to a traditionally female animal in its in its mythological tellings right mm-hmm. you know and it's like through that that he's he gains all these things and that it's the empowerment of the individual through the uh the relaxation of the the human animal boundary um so like what what other that's brilliant by the way that's brilliant he's right on with that it's it's brilliant so what are the other uh characteristics i mean i know that um one one of your videos in particular addresses the crossing of the great water. And I'd love to hear yes. you uh, riff on that, obviously, because we've been talking about the actual swimming across the Strait of Gibraltar and, you know, how that shows up, you know, how that particular piece of this has, has like been carried down through the ages. Absolutely. What, what do you fair. think that that meant to them in a kind of a yeah. more spiritual sense? Well, um, it, the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung found that the two most common non-organic symbols in dreams were the mountain and the body of water. 
And there's a really there's a really great song by Billy Joel, "The River of Dreams." Can you sing it for us? Uh, it's been so long. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So Billy Joel um, wakes up wakes up in the night with a song in his head, and it's "The River of Dreams." And in this dream, he goes down to the river, but the river's too wide and too far to cross. But he wants to cross to the other. He's seeking to cross to the other side, and he also he also encounters the mountains of faith. Now Billy Joel is and was a um, you know a secular piano man. Okay, he was not a spiritual man, and he struggled with this song because it's 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 portraying a religious a spiritual theme that he just wasn't comfortable with. And so he, he's in the shower, and he's still, it's still bouncing around his head, and he puts it down to print and says, I'm going with this. And it became one of the most, most famous, popular songs. And the, so Billy Joel has this, these archetypal character, characters in his, in his head, the mountains and the body of water. And the water is the water transformation. Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan by St. Saint, Saint John. In this particular water, he is... When he swims across that water, he's swimming to almost certain death, okay? And it's, it's the transformation between the world that he knows to a world beyond his imagination, where there's the giraffe and there's the crocodiles and all the, you know, these other lions and so forth. And so it's the water transformation. It's the water of no return. And we find that throughout the mythological um, literature that they cross this, this water of um, of transformation. It's a common thing. If you were to s- research how to write a novel, in it would they'd have things like the river archetypal river transformation and the cosmic mountain and many others. So they're they're within, they're somehow within our psyche. Now Jung said that there's too many people that had these these archetypes that it was so uncanny. And people that didn't relate to each other and people hadn't read about the mythology of crossing the rivers. So how did they have it in their dreams? And from that, he postulated the idea of this collective unconscious, that we somehow carry symbols within ourselves in addition to, of course, instinctual behavior. And so that's where Jung came about, this this collective unconscious. And it was through the dreams of man. And Jung had a record of many thousands of dreams where he had these archetypal symbols. And not just the, the inorganic ones, but he had a horse, he had an elephant, and you know, bir- dark birds, and, and a few others. But it's in us. And that's why, that's what really bothered Billy Joel. Is he recognized he had this, so- this spiritual song in his head about crossing the river of transformation, or the river of death to go to the other side, and he didn't want to write it down. And I saw an interview from Billy on YouTube that was done many years later. And he talks about the song. He says, you know, I really never understood what it was about. Well, I'm going to tell you, Billy Joel has never been to a psychologist. Because it's, it's like you know, the first chapter of 101. Okay, <laughs> Is this the river of transformation? But Billy didn't. He wasn't connected in that way. But he, he wasn't intellectually connected that way. But he was spiritually or psychologically connected that he carried this song with us that we, we still can't shake. And it, it doesn't have to be the river per se. For example, when we carry, when uh, Luke Skywalker, he travels from his home place to another planet, deep space is the, is the biggest river of all. And in this, in this, this gallery, this image where the constellations in this, in the area between the, where we find the, the Iberian Peninsula, when we have Africa, we have the body of water, the marine environment, we have these marine animals. Well, in the night sky, that's also called the sea. And that's why I have all the marine animals. And so in, in, this, in this archetypal journey that Billy Joel takes and that Hercules takes, because he takes a journey across the Strait of Gibraltar. And then as we see depicted in this, in this image, it's the greatest journey of all through space, which is, you know, as we would believe, not just the river, but to the hereafter. And many Native Americans, they traveled across, they depicted themselves in images and stories as traveling in a canoe across the Milky Way to the other side. Mm. It's in us. We can't escape it. So, I mean, it sounds pretty clear that we, you know, you would suspect or suppose that we're going to carry this forward into, you know, off world, into our interplanetary adventures and but but even first, I'd be curious to hear you wax a bit on the 
contemporary significance of this in in light of the fact that we are in some sense as a species you know standing there on the iberian peninsula looking across this expanse which we can call you know uh, global warming or the anthropocene or you know this, this period where mm -hmm. um, we're having to take an extraordinary and unprecedented accountability for ourselves as a species and it's completely you know something that i hear people talk about again and again and again uh, on this show and elsewhere is how like the first lesson that we seem to be confronted with right now collectively is acceptance of the fact that there's no guarantee that we're going to make it through this you know that there's that, that something about the existential insecurity of embarking mm -hmm. on on this journey you know this rite of passage as as humankind is like well you know there's a very strong chance that we're going to die in this process and i'm i'm curious i mean that seems like fairly low hanging fruit uh if we if we transpose this uh, this archetypal structure onto our current condition i'm i'm curious to know good question uh, okay yeah, so my advice you take it yeah i've got some good news for you some of us are going to make it <laughs> okay <laughs> so i'm going to tell you we're going to we're going to dial this back to 34,000 years ago and and 34,000 years ago we're entering the ice age at a let's call it a higher point so 17,000 years ago there's, there's glaciers across northern europe but, but Africa had wet periods, okay? And about 12,000 years ago, we have a great wet period in Africa because the, the, the climate had changed because it wobbled the earth, which not precession of the equinoxes per se, but precession, but the wobbled earth precession itself, okay? 12,000 years ago, cave art ends in Europe. It just ends. So all these phenomenal galleries and all these great animals, it just ends. But then it starts again in another place, in the Sahara, okay? And in Sahara, at that time, we find images of giraffes and elephants and lions and alligators and hippopotamus, fundamentally the same animals we saw in, the, in, the European, in this European cave. Well, what happened was, through climate change, as, the, as we started to warm up, the monsoon range cha changed in, in Africa that they moved north. And the Sahara became something like the, the Kalahari today, except a lot more lakes. Um, so huge lakes. So today you, you could travel for, you know, weeks on foot across the Sahara and come to a rock face and find a crocodile or a hippopotamus. Well, there was a time when there were, there were lakes larger than the Great Lakes, and those lakes have since subsided into the earth, and they're pumping that, those out to feed water to the cities. Well, the, so what I believe happened is that 12,000 years ago, the pe people left Africa, went into Western North Africa, and they enjoyed, you know, this abundance of animal life. So there will always be winners and there'll be losers. If there's warming in the United States, well, that means that it's going to be it's going to be a little warm in Alaska, and that'll change that environment too. And I'm not going to take one side or the other on this one, but there's going to be winners and losers. And four in four thousand years from now, the Sahara is going to be a wetland again. So that's a, a real estate tip. You know, get on it quick. Um, but you, the world is, is it's going to change and people will be moving around and or the people that do move around are the ones that are going to make it. But the ones that stay where they are, it's, and the domicile, their time will end. So we, we will always have migrations. We, 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 you know, we have governments now, we have people, and we've invested in homes and all these sort of things, but we will always migrate. And the people that migrate would be the ones that survive. And we can't turn back. There's man-influenced climate change. But there's also natural-influenced climate change due to the, the wobbling of the earth, and it relates to the angle of the sun. It's angle to the sun. So we will have a very different world in a few thousand years, where the Sahara is, where there's lakes with crocodiles swimming around again, and hippopotamus and giraffes running, running amok. And... You know, it'll be a beautiful, a beautiful place, a paradise of sorts. So there's going to be winners and losers. The good news is some of us are going to make it. And you think that, I mean, it's, it sounds like you're saying that it's almost like a Taoist statement about 
the you know being flexible rather than being rigid in our in our orientation to a changing world that that uh I, you know to call again on on uh john david ebert's talk from last night you know after afterwards in the in group discussion we're talking about the future of the city and global warming and how you know the enormous displacement of human populations is going to happen as the coastal cities yes. are submerged mm-hmm. so like you know do, do you see any i mean in a more i guess granular sense do you do you see any kind of wisdom from this this ancient human spiritual orientation and, and absolutely to like, <laughs> what are the what are the strategies beyond simply you know like be prepared to pick up and go you know like um, yeah. yeah yeah so a few a few strategies so we can track this religion or this faith of sorts this animist faith from 34,000 years ago intact to 17,000 years ago at the skull cave so fundamentally no changes so how could you have can Abrahamic religions haven't been around for more than two, you know, more than three thousand, four thousand years now, and there's and there's so many splits between them that they're constantly at war. Well, these people had at least seventeen thousand years, and I would even say when it, it went into the, the Sahara after that, they had an intact religion and a cultural life system, life perspective, and how they did it was they understood the world they were in with. They didn't treat the animals as animals that we should be afraid of or animals that we should just harvest, but they treat them as animals that we can learn from. So how does, you know, how does a, you know, a rat survive in the city? Well, you can learn from that. You know, I don't really need to know that today, but there's, there's lots of lessons that we can learn from the animals about how, how they, they live in the world, both the, the construction world we create as well as the natural world. And so this hero on his journey, he's learning how the world works and he's bringing back that knowledge to his own people so they can carry on and they carried on for at least 17,000 years with this knowledge and that's phenomenal so they went through they went through the ice age they went into the the humid period in north sahara the the lesson to be learned about this number one we haven't changed in 34,000 years and we're not going to change psychologically we're not going to change we're just going to have better toys number two is that if we can become more in tune to the animals in our world and respect that they're animal beings, not just wild animals, we can learn from them. Um, and Native Americans will talk about how they, they wanted to bring, they brought the wolves back because the, the wolves teach them family relationships. And it's, it's a brilliant metaphor that or allegory that they use in their stories. Well, we can learn the same from all the animals in our world. How those, how those animals not just persevere, but how, how they flourished in the environments that they live in and what can we learn from them. And of course, over consumption, you know, a penguin doesn't eat any more than it needs to. Um, because if it ate two more than it needs to, you'd probably run out of fish for the penguin that's standing next to it in the cold. So there's a lot of lessons we can learn from the, the animals. Now, the animals in this image, the mothers nurture their young, they protect their young. And so we can learn that the importance of um, the females in society, which we, of course, have come to in our modern times, irrespective of these images. But we can also learn that we all seek to take this hero's journey, that the hero's journey is within ourselves. And if we someday don't have television, movie theaters, and Netflix, and all these sort of things, we'll still tell the same story that we were told 34,000 years ago. We may change the name to Luke Skywalker, or Frodo, or Dorothy, or whatever name we come up with. But we have these stories in us, and it's how we express where we come from and where we're going. And I don't just mean where we come from 34,000 years ago, but the stories express the unexplainable of existence before our existence and perhaps an existence after our existence or after the individual's existence, at least. So these archetypal stories are in us. We can't escape from them. And once we recognize that, we can come to live in our own own world and our own minds and i believe that's the the lesson to be learned from these images we we really haven't changed much except we've got better toys Mm. you know it's funny i think so often i hear when people talk about the hero's journey it's it's like going to the gym or something it's just this Mm -hmm. you know this masculine you know pumping up of you know like you're, you're testing yourself through trials and there sounds like there's some something in there here but it, I, I love 
that your emphasis is on the humility and and the receptivity to learning from the non-human intelligences and i you know it, it does seem given our current scientific climate and the you know the growing acceptance that we can talk about things like plant intelligence for example mm-hmm. you know that that we may be coming around to understanding linguistic communication of whales and dolphins and tool use mm-hmm. and corvids and all that stuff that it, it I, it's it's kind of optimistic or hopeful that we do seem as a species to be you know slowly pivoting back into this place of accepting that mm-hmm. it's that the world does actually have something to teach us so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, we're coming up on an hour here and, uh, you're curious about a lot of things, Michael, we're going to need you to know the session. I know. Yeah, this truly, <laughs> truly. Well, I mean, maybe the, the right place to put a pin in it for, you know, for future conversation is, well, wh- what is the current state of this research? You've got this book, you know, you're making the rounds, you're telling people about it. Who else is working on these ideas? Where is this, where is this accepted? Where is this being challenged? You know, what is the state of the, the larger conversation around your interpretations and ideas? So for the, the archaeological side, it's been widely accepted across people who do these sort of things. And they're making connections between the animals. I do a lot of work on Picasso and how he found the images. And so there, but there's a process between when people first identify things and they start their own research and timing and dating and so on. So you're probably talking two years before you start seeing people publishing new work on it and or additional work in the literature because there's a this i just disrupted the whole apple cart people were on a path of of working down a road with hypotheses and i've come out of left field with something different and so people are people are now working on dating work they look studying the images and so forth so that's that's sort of the archaeology and the anthropology but there's there's this covers this is the teacher's edition book of humanity it tells us where we've come in 34,000 years and perhaps even long before that. So th- there's so much to digest. And so the psychologists, I mean, they've got to rethink their own hypotheses about humanity and where, and where we've come. We, literature, we're telling the same story over and over again. Um, in art, we're actually repainting the same pictures. Uh, Picasso borrowed images directly from these Paleolithic caves. And so modern art isn't even modern art. It's a recreation of Paleolithic art. And so there's, there's a process that people are going through to say, oh, my God, you know, what are the implications of this? And you also have a lot of people that are published in these areas that it's going to take time for them to sort of kind of get over it and move on. But there's a lot of, um, you know, I can look at the, the views on, you know, YouTube and other places. I've reached more than two million people in long form podcasts, which means at least an hour. I could have done that 10 years ago or 15, definitely not 15 years ago. And so the next step, for, so what's the next step for me? I'm not writing another book because this, what, this book was my hero's journey. I got past the red discs. I you know, <laughs> dove deep into myself. This was my story. And someday when you, you have a chance to read the whole book, you'll see that it truly was a journey. And so the next step for me is I'd love to do a, like a documentary, something on Netflix or, or be, be a part of somebody else, a piece of somebody else's documentary, some myths and monsters or something like that, and build from there and to, to keep, telling, keep telling the story. But I, see, I can see who tweets, retweets my stuff, and it's kind of a who's who and the people who think about these things. So there's a lot of excitement, a lot of interest. It's been fun. It's been exciting. And if you read Joseph Campbell and his hero's journey, Hero of a Thousand Faces, one of the, the characteristics or points of, for the hero is that after he takes the journey, or he or she, she takes the journey, the hero returns home to tell the story of their journey, of their heroic epic. And so this is my time to tell the story and fundamentally kind of retire from the, the research and all these, these other things. But it's a lot of fun, and I love connecting and um, expressing and sharing the information that I gathered on this journey and that other, many other people helped me as well, such as George Schauer. Mm. So, you know, I love to end these episodes with a little thought experiment because if we're treating this as its own kind of cave painting, right, a communication uh, to the distant future, you know, to who, whatever archaeologist finds this episode like recorded in a, you know, a diamond 
uh, like in the desert somewhere. I mean, that's my hope is to get future fossils mm -hmm. inscribed in diamonds someday. Uh, <laughs> then, um, you know, then you're going to be the blue ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, yeah. you know, passing your message down <laughs> yep. to them. And what would you, other than what you have said, other than this, you know, profound synthesis of, you know, the, the human mythosphere, um, what, what would you say, or what would you ask of these, these very, very distant future people? Well, Michael, I believe that some great descendant of mine and some great descendant of yours will have the same conversation. Just as the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, Babylonians, and the others had. And the question is going to be asked, what have we learned? And it will be the same answer that Picasso expressed when he came out of the Altamira cave. When people tasked him, is this real? Because they thought it was a fraud because it was too good. And Picasso walked out of the cave. And he said one line, we have invented nothing. <laughs> That's a beautiful place to wrap it up. Bernie, thank you so much for being on the show. Great, Michael. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. This show is sponsored in part by featured patron Mike Schwab of KnowYourMeme.com. Know Your Meme is a community where people expound on the history and significance of various web memes. It's super comprehensive. I think as far as navigating the increasingly deep layers of modern internet culture, Know Your Meme is providing a very vital function in helping us orient ourselves in what Michelle Shevin in episode 103, citing W.J.T. Mitchell, calls the paleontology of the present. I find Know Your Meme to be a very interesting and valuable resource. You can get into those forums and start contributing today. Also, this show is hosted on MindPod Network. Big shout out to Noah Lampert and everyone else on MindPod for their awesomeness. Subscribe to every podcast on there, then just lie on the floor having your mind blown constantly. Thanks, everybody, and have a beautiful week. 